Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a general practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Bruce Errol about antibiotic use, the prescribing challenges we face, and the updates on antibiotic use. Dr. Errol is a professor at the Department of General Practice and Primary Healthcare at the University of Auckland. He also works in clinical practice at Greenstone Family Clinic in Manurewa, South Auckland. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you for the invite. So today we're talking about antibiotics. Bruce, patients often come in thinking they have an infection and want or need antibiotics. What strategies can we use to manage these patients and their expectations? Well, many patients come in wanting antibiotics for respiratory symptoms, and I think there's uh, most of the evidence would suggest that for um, respiratory, upper respiratory tract infections, antibiotics don't make any difference. Basically, the only situation where antibiotics make a difference are in pneumonia or proven streptococcal tonsillitis, where there's a risk of rheumatic fever. So in these situations, I think saying to patients, uh, there's new evidence suggesting antibiotics don't work because often their experience is they think they have worked, which of course they can't tell whether they've had a, they've just got better anyway or whether they've got the antibiotic. Um, so that's one issue. Another issue is they'll be coughing up coloured spit and that on its own is not an indication for an antibiotic. It's probably just oxidization of the sputum. So there's a great myth out there about secondary bacterial infections. It's all part of the primary inflammatory response. Whenever we get a respiratory infection, we start producing uh, mucus, colored mucus, and then it finally clears. So I think that's something to debunk with people. But rather than going into a long debate about viral versus bacterial, I think just saying the latest evidence suggests antibiotics don't work, and that sort of cuts and kills the conversation, uh, which I think is a good thing. So what sort of things can we offer these patients, Bruce? Well, there's a lot of things we can offer. One is to uh, reduce their expectations. Coughs last four or five weeks. So say to people, this is probably going to last four or five weeks. It should be getting better over that time. If it gets worse, we need to have a listen to your chest and even consider perhaps a chest X-ray in extreme cases. But I think if the patient's got a clear chest, then really there's no indication for antibiotics. In fact, I often think in general practice, if a patient comes in with respiratory symptoms, the first thing we should do is lay our stethoscope on their chest and then continue the discussion rather than doing the history and then the exam. Uh, because of the chest clear, really there's very little you can offer people. Uh, it's, it's going to be a viral upper respiratory tract infection. The big issue, of course, is if the patient wants antibiotics and is insistent on it, it requires a lot of emotional strength. You really have to gird your loins to, to, to go in for the big fight, uh, knowing this is going to be very tricky. And if the patient is still insistent, that might be a situation where you might want to try a back pocket prescription as the first step in educating them. But I think back pocket prescriptions, and I've done research on them, are in a sense a bit of a con because you don't think they need the antibiotic then, but you're actually giving them one. One, one suggestion is to post-date it and say, well, you can't pick it up for five days and actually post-date it. But I think a lot of patients would probably present it before then, so that may not always work. 
So I suppose simple things become important then. So what are some of the other supportive things that we can offer our patients, Bruce? Certainly, and things like um, nasal decongestants, xylometazoline, you can prescribe a protropium if you're working in New Zealand. That's fun, that's good for rhinitis. We can use the vapor rubs, the chest vapor rubs uh, on children's chests and around their noses and honey in children has been shown to be effective. So there are some things rather than antibiotics which uh, they're going to get better whether they use or not. The evidence is pretty clear about that. And then there's all the risks that come with antibiotics as well. So talking about risks, Bruce, what risks should we be telling our patients about? When it comes to antibiotics? Mm. Well, I think there's the immediate risks of diarrhoea, which is depending on how broad spectrum. If you're going to use amoxyl, it's an issue if you used Augmentin, and I wouldn't suggest that in this case at all, you run a very, you know, 30% of people will get uh, diarrhea with, with Augmentin, not to mention some of the more serious side effects that can occur with Augmentin liver failure. I've had two patients end up on ventilators from that. Even doxycycline causes liver failure, bone marrow problems, the macrolides, uh, there's one or two people killed every other year in New Zealand with simple or regular antibiotics. So I sometimes feel like saying to patients, do you think you have a life-threatening illness? In which case, would you, do you think you need a life-threatening drug? <laughs> because they're not candies, and I think we've somehow lost sight of the, uh, the toxicity of drugs, not to mention what it may be doing to the biome, the, micro, the microbiology flora of the body, and the increase in resistance which is starting to plague our community. So there's all sorts of downsides to giving antibiotics and they don't work. So you're giving, you're giving a drug that doesn't work and the only, the only re response people will get from it is side effects. The only, the only thing they'll get is harm, they will get no benefit and I think um, we need to switch the occasion. I guess just one other thing, 50% of New Zealanders get an antibiotic every year, 55% of children and in places like the Netherlands, it's 5%. So someone's doing something right or wrong. And my colleagues in the Netherlands think even 5% is too much. So we're, we're way out of line in that sense. Worse than the UK, in fact. So, Bruce, just thinking about skin infections now, when should we use antibiotics in skin infections and how should we use them? Well, for simple impetigo, if it's in small areas, you can use hydrogen peroxide or the iodine um, solutions, that's one, one possibility. If it's not getting better with that, uh, or it's a large area, then you want to use uh, an antibiotic like flucloxacillin. In children, they're now recommending cephalexin because of the taste. Uh, try not to use augmentin because of the taste, because it's an important drug, and it does have nasty side effects. Uh, there's a big move now not to use topical antibiotics. It can be very difficult if you've just got a tiny little bit of impetigo. The temptation is to use a topical antibiotic, but the resistance rates have just rocketed up since they, well, for a period of time they were available over the counter. Uh, Muparacin was available over the counter, and the resistance rates just went rocketing up like to about 50%. And we really want to keep these drugs for eliminating nasal carriage of staph. And so that's, that's the major indication for topical antibiotics. Otherwise, go to oral and five days is probably enough for that. Uh, for cellulitis, it's now five days of antibiotics. 
and waiting and seeing, not necessarily considering the redness of the skin to be the best indicator of infection. Most patients, so long as they're stable, probably don't need more than five days. There's some quite good evidence on that. And simple so-called narrow-spectrum drugs like flucloxacillin are fine. I suppose with cellulitis, uh, an off-work certificate's important? Yes, and that, that should be no problem. So you know, five days off work probably would be not unreasonable for that. What about bites, Bruce? When should we use antibiotics with bites? So bites, uh, th this is one situation where uh, augmentin is recommended uh, in the hand or on the face or when, when there are tendons involved. Antibiotics are probably not needed. It's, it's difficult to know, you have to judge this. Uh, if you can clean a wound out acutely, so wounds that can't be can't be cleaned out need antibiotics if they can't be cleaned out immediately. And if they're in the, the, the thigh or the forearm, then, then they may not, or the back or somewhere, then, then they may not need antibiotics at all. It all depends on how quickly you can get to clean the, to clean the wound out. And what about the case of a diabetic foot, Bruce? That's the other situation where you can use amoxicillin clavulanate and that's and that's for the, the difficulty sometimes I think with diabetic ulcers is deciding whether they're infected or not. So ideally, you want increasing redness and pain, and where possible, a swab I think would be quite helpful. But uh, sometimes these things look infected when in fact they're not. So it's a bit of a judgment call, and of course you don't want to you don't want to miss the boat on on something like that. I suppose we, if we're worried about a diabetic foot, then perhaps an early referral is indicated. That's true. If you thought they needed hospitalisation, often they don't need hospitalisation. It's, it's a tricky one, I think. It's often they don't need hospitalisation in the early phases. So, And I guess in primary care, we're always trying to avoid referring patients to hospital. But again, I don't think the hospital would mind seeing somebody like that. They may not admit them. I guess the decision to admit is then up to them. So I think if you've got any doubts, it's a very high risk situation, of course. So you don't want to be taking chances. So Bruce, thinking back to cellulitis now, um, it's been mentioned that we can sometimes stop antibiotics before the course is finished. I wonder if you could comment on that for us. Well, it depends a little bit on how long you plan your initial course. If, it, if it's five days, my experience with cellulitis is that it's really completely better by, by five days. If you're giving 10 days, of course, uh, a lot of them will be better way, way before then and you'll never know. So that's the advantage of trying a five-day course. And I think you'll find in most cases, if the patient's temperature is normal, their pulse is normal, they're feeling well, then I think to stop it at five days. I think if things were looking fine at three days, it would be quite reasonable. So again, it's, it's contextual and you use your clinical judgment. So, um, so this idea that we have to give long courses of antibiotics is sort of uh, going out the window. And just finishing off on skin, um, talking about mastitis, you don't always need antibiotics with mastitis. What would the indications be for using an antibiotic? Well, I think somebody who's getting toxic, like got increased pulse and increased temperature and feeling unwell, but I think just simple mastitis, uh, keeping the, the milk expressed is, is what's needed and just monitoring the patient fairly closely. Uh, so moving on, Bruce, and thinking about the so-called lower respiratory tract infections, patients really need antibiotics here, but what would be the indications for an antibiotic? Well, the indications here would be pneumonia, so that's, that's pretty clear, and that's usually fairly straightforward. Patients are quite sick, and they get better 
really quickly with antibiotics is my experience in the community. And so long as somebody's stable, they've got a good pulse and blood pressure and they're eating and drinking, they can usually be treated at home unless they're very, very elderly. The other situation would be COPD, and that's a bit more discretionary. Uh, technically, you need to be sort of increase in wheezing, bringing up more sputum. So those are situations where you might want to give antibiotics, but there you just give the usual amoxyl, uh, erythromycin or roxithromycin uh, or doxycycline for five days. Pneumonia is five to seven days. If a patient's feeling good after five days of amoxyl and their pulse and blood pressure and everything's normal, again, I would stop the antibiotic. There's, no, there's probably no benefit in the extra days. Some of the trials have shown that anyway. And then talking about the upper respiratory tract infections, Bruce, the use of antibiotics should be limited here also. I wonder if you could talk us through that. So when it comes to upper respiratory tract infections, if the patient just has a runny nose and sore throat, uh, what I would call a common cold, and actually ironically there's, there's, there's a whole lot of definitions of a common cold, any respiratory symptom uh, where you can't make a firm diagnosis, uh, Patients don't need antibiotics, uh, no matter what colour their sputum. I mean, I think if they've still got coloured sputum after four weeks, you might, and, and it's bothersome, you might want to try an antibiotic at that point, but that would be pretty unusual. So long as somebody is getting slowly better, that's the key thing. The other issue is if a patient has sinus pain. Now, most of this is just sinus pressure. And again, I think uh, a trial of a good decongestant, xylometazoline nasal spray, 0.1% will clear most people. And if, if they still have symptoms after a good trial of decongestants, that's possibly a situation where there's a bacterial infection. And you're never sure, short of sticking a needle into someone's maxillary sinus, whether they've got a bacterial infection or not. And most people get better on uh, placebo in the, in the placebo trials and if, if somebody's clearly got a bacterial infection. But there is this thing of waiting 10 days. And I have to say, it's pretty uncommon to see somebody who's still got symptoms after 10 days. The problem is we've now got a population of people who are used to getting antibiotics for their sinus and they come in saying those terrible words, I want something to knock it on the head. And my heart sinks when patients come in and say that. And uh, you know, whereas if I gave them some pseudoephedrine, they would be better that day by and large. And uh, the other thing is inhaled nasal steroids, uh, fluticasone or beclomethasone or budesonide uh, in high doses has been shown to help in these situations. And another option would be nasal rinses. Uh, there's no trial evidence that that helps, but it does make people feel better and they can sort of slosh the, the saline around their nose, nasal cavities and, um, and uh, may make them breathe a little bit better. But Definitely with the so-called sinusitis, antibiotics are absolutely discretionary, not mandatory. How about um, otitis externa? Otitis externa, so the way I divide it up, I talk about pus coming from the ear canal in children or adults. I find that a useful distinction. So my view would be in adults, uh, it's probably otitis externa. Uh, in some older Maori patients, you will find, uh, if you can see the drum, a chronic perforation and they will have a hearing problem and quite damaged uh, ossicles. Uh, and in, I think in the, in the typical, the, the patient where there isn't a perforation in the drum, 
than just simple antibiotics and steroids. And I suspect probably the steroids are what do the trick. My experience is people using cotton buds in their ears is causing the problem. Uh, if it's just if it's, if it's a straight perforation, I think those situations are possibly more bacterial and maybe just a pure antibiotic. But uh, there's a, there's a limited choice of pure antibiotics, so that's an issue. Um, and in children, then I think that's usually a situation, especially younger children, of uh, ear perforation. The perforation is usually closed by the time you get the the pus out of the ear. They don't need suction routinely. Okay, there are um, if you've got suction, well that's nice, but it doesn't seem to speed things up. Half the trials done with eardrops didn't have suction, and in my own experience, I've never needed it. Basically, the ears always dry up. You want to get a good look at the eardrum because if there's a persisting perforation, that child may need a patch on the ear. And that's usually before they're eight, they get the patches put on there. You don't want to take a perforation into adulthood. Now, the whole issue is which uh, topical antibiotic you use. And the ones with the uh, gramicide and framacetin in them, uh, there is some concern about middle ear toxicity. It's not well documented. And uh, the alternative is to use ciprofloxin uh, in, the, in the ear. And that, that's an option, uh, although there isn't an ear form of it. There's only the eye form of it. Uh, if you are worried about toxicity, then that would be an option. And uh, the other issue is using things like the, the, the named product, Kinecum. It's got nystatin in it, gramicide and framacetin, and a topical steroid. So you don't need the uh, anti-yeast, uh, possibly antifungal. Um, I think fungal infections of the ear are very rare in my experience. Um, the other drug that is recommended is Locortin Viaform. That's got a cortisone in it with an antifungal, Clarquinol as an antifungal, possibly with some antibacterial um, activity in it. The only advantage of it is essentially you're giving a steroid to a patient and the, and the Clarquinol is a, is a byproduct, uh, not really doing anything. But if the person didn't get better with that, then I would probably want to add an antibiotic to that situation, clearly the steroid. And we don't really know yet whether a steroid alone works or whether an antibiotic alone works. And I suspect we're looking at two different pathological processes there. In general, it's not quite that clear in reality, but if you think of adults with pus coming out of their ears and children with pus coming out of their ears, I think the processes are quite different usually. Excellent points, thank you, Bruce. What about acute otitis media? And again, I suppose breaking it into adult and children is useful when we're thinking about that. Well, I have to say my experience with acute otitis media in adults is that it's incredibly rare. And they are almost always smokers, which has been my experience. It really is. It's like streptococcal tonsillitis is very rare in adults. And again, they're usually smokers in my experience. It's really unusual to see that. So you've got a 45-year-old with a sore throat. I wouldn't bother doing the throat swab basically all giving antibiotic with all the risk. But with acute otitis media, it is recommended in children under the age of six months to give routine antibiotics. Um, when they're between six months and two years, uh, if they've got bilateral infection or with perforation or ot otorrhea, or if there's been no improvement with 48 hours, uh, consideration of antibiotics in children with recurrent infections, 
is, is an issue. But we also have to remember that in all the trials of otitis media, very sick children didn't get into it. So if you've got a very toxic child in front of you, then I would give antibiotics to that child because they, they, the, the studies probably didn't have those people in and you just have to look at how toxic the child is. I often say to parents, if there's a unilateral otitis media, we don't routinely give antibiotics. What's your view on that? And I have to say most parents say, that's fine with me. Um, and they need good pain relief because all those antibiotics do is improve the pain. There was, the, the issue of duration is interesting. There was a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine giving Augmentin, which I wouldn't recommend as a first choice ever. Amoxyl's the first choice drug. But it does have to be given in highish doses, sometimes up to 90 milligrams per kilogram per day. So, and in which case you have to write uh, on the prescription, this is a high dose, otherwise the pharmacist thinks you're having a bad day or you've miswritten something. But in this trial, it was published a couple of years ago, they randomized groups to five days versus 10 days. And there was about a 10% improvement in the group that got um, 10 days, but most, most of the kids were better at five days. And 30% of the group got diarrhea and, and sort of a nappy rash, which may be using Augmentin uh, or amoxicillin clavulanate by its chemical name. Um, so again, I would not use that. And I think just on the antibiotic stewardship, I think five days is fine and then just monitoring. So it doesn't make any difference in terms of the long-term need for, for ventilation tubes. So that's the key thing. It really only makes a difference in terms of pain. So moving on now, Bruce, and thinking about sore throats and tonsillitis, really the only indication for antibiotics here is to prevent rheumatic fever. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. I do see lots of prescriptions for sore throats and tonsillitis. What are your thoughts here? Well, that's true. So in, in New Zealand, we're trying to prevent traumatic fever, and that really is an illness of people under the age of 30. It's thought that any case of rheumatic fever that occurs over 30 is actually a recurrence rather than a primary event. So it really, and it really is an illness of younger children under the age of, uh, under the age of 15 uh, is, the, is the peak age group. And so we often seeing a lot of people coming in with sore throats and we do throat swabs and we get a positive and it's actually very difficult not to treat somebody when you've done a, a throat swab and got, got a positive strep because then you as the doctor, the monkey's on your back. You're probably better off if you don't think it's a strep is not to do the throat swab basically because you've got a bit of a medico-legal problem there if something were to happen, uh, Quincy or a mastoiditis or something and you, you hadn't treated it. So I think um, if it's obviously a cold, and I do find it difficult sometimes following the guidelines on that because the guidelines are heavily weighted. Uh, so if a Mario Pacific child comes in with a runny nose and a sore throat, technically they, they qualify for a swab. And uh, I think you just have to use your discretion on that and, um, and consider whether you're going to do a throat swab or treat or, or, or what. So it's, it's, it's not always that easy, basically. I think the big thing is what's going to make a difference with rheumatic fever is the school program, if anything's going to make a difference. By the time a number of children get to see their GP, uh, there's a whole lot who have missed out. And I think the school program's got that population-based approach. And I think it's starting to make a difference in South Auckland. I think this, this early stats are looking good. Yeah, so my, my faith is in the school program rather than what we can do in, in general practice. We just have to deal with the individual cases. Perfect. Thank you, Bruce. 
Um, so let's finish off again talking about amoxiclavulanic acid, Bruce. Um, we've talked a little bit about this already today, but there are really very few indications to use this antibiotic. Human bites in a susceptible spot, the diabetic foot, failed sinusitis treatment and diverticulitis. Occasionally a complicated UTI is recommended by BPAC. However, this antibiotic is well overprescribed, and there are far too many prescriptions for this antibiotic. I wonder, you've got some quite neat strategies that you use in your practice. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about what you and your colleagues do in South Auckland. Well, in our clinic, we have an amoxicillin clavulanate-free clinic. We like to think we don't prescribe it, which isn't strictly true, but we keep a close eye on it. And what you're supposed to do if you want to prescribe that medication is ask a colleague and I rather famously on two occasions asked 50 medical students and they said no. So I went on ahead and used flucloxacillin and they, they like that story when I, when I tell it to them. So, and we, we, we keep an eye on, on, on our annual auditing and to see how often we, we do give Augmentin. As I said earlier, you can use Kefalexin and if you're worried about flavor and taste, then Kefalexin is something you can use in children. Uh, the other point you just made there was about diverticulitis. That's another area where if the patient just has lower abdominal pain and you think it's diverticular disease with some inflammation, that the evidence is antibiotics don't make any difference. And it may be more a connective tissue disorder. I'm part of a group at North Shore Hospital looking at that and it, it tends to correlate with a whole lot of connective tissue disorders. That, that, that remains to be elucidated. If somebody's got peritonitis, well, they need to go to hospital. Mm. But if they've just, if you just think they've got a bit of inflammation of their descending or sigmoid colon, then I wouldn't use uh, antibiotics. And the BPAC guidelines suggest that amoxicillin clavulanate is a second choice line there anyway. And the other use where it used to be used was in gum infections, they're now, the new BPAC recommendations are for amoxyl and for three days only. So, because you really need to see a dentist and get the get the abscess drained. So, so that's our amoxicillin clavulanate free clinic. Sounds like some good strategies, Bruce. So, Bruce, to conclude today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Well, I think the key thing is for most things in primary care that antibiotics are discretionary rather than mandatory and you, you have to learn to keep the antibiotic pen in your pocket, I think, and learn to sit on things and just see things naturally getting better. And most of the time, uh, that, that will be a winning strategy and you'll be improving the uh, effectiveness of antibiotics for your children and grandchildren. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand doctor and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in a Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.